0: Also remember, when you buy Ochenta's audiobooks, you're directly supporting our independent audio series productions. So find Atlas Lingue, the layers of language behind everyday life, on Libro.fm, Apple Books, Google Play, Storytel, BookBeat, and on your favorite audiobooks app. When the Russian invasion of Ukraine started earlier this year, people all over the world listened to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressing parliaments and leaders everywhere, raising awareness about the conflict and seeking help. And he often did so in Ukrainian. на новина про Now, to many people, this might seem obvious, right? A president speaking his country's language? Except it's a little different with Zelensky, who is actually a native Russian speaker. He was born and raised in a Russian-speaking part of the country and learned Ukrainian later in life.
1: In this time of crisis, you have Zelensky who in his time in office, his Ukrainian has gotten very, very fluent, but he can seamlessly switch from Ukrainian to Russian.
0: This is Dr. Lada Bilanyuk.
1: I'm a professor of anthropology at the University of Washington in Seattle. And the research that I focus on is language politics in Ukraine.
0: There are two main languages spoken in Ukraine, Ukrainian and Russian. Shortly after the Soviet Union was founded in the early 20th century, Russian became the main language of government and business, but many households continued to speak Ukrainian at home. This led to a unique mixing of the two languages that remains to this day, as well as a situation in which most Ukrainians can at least understand both languages well. Ukraine's linguistic situation reminds us that languages are always much more than just codes for verbal communication. They hold layers of culture and politics, and the language one speaks, whether as a deliberate choice or as a mother tongue learned at home, always reflects much more than just that. This is especially true with Zelensky's own language journey.
1: In his campaign for the presidency, he had a series of video blogs And a couple of these vlogs were very interesting because he showed himself uh, doing everyday stuff, meeting with people. It shows him going to the gym. And he has a couple of these uh, videos where he goes to the gym and he is both doing his physical training and his Ukrainian language training. So his trainer will give him a word to translate from Ukrainian into Russian or vice versa. And if he gets it wrong, he has to do two pull-ups or something like that. And they usually, the, in the vlog, they, they choose some pretty obscure words. But, uh, you know, many of them, Zelensky does know correctly. And it's funny, because at the end, he shows his hands that are all, you know, sort of welty from, from the effort he's been doing. He's saying, oh, this is how, what I'm doing to learn Ukrainian language.
0: Wow. I mean, I know learning irregular verb conjugations can definitely make me sweat sometimes, but this takes it to a whole other level.
1: And I've watched some of his speeches where he's speaking Ukrainian and then he'll shift into Russian. Now he mostly does it to address the Russian people in Russia.
0: So not only does he speak both languages, he also chooses when to speak each one and who to address in each one. And in doing so, he's sending a crystal clear message. I am speaking to you. I'm Luis Lopez, and in this special episode of Atlas Lingue, we take a look at the unique bilingualism of Ukraine. We will talk about how these languages developed together and influenced each other, about the unique way they've mixed, and about how which language you speak sometimes matters a lot, and sometimes doesn't matter at all. At this point, it might be worth it to take a step back and analyze how we got here. How did this become a bilingual nation? How do these languages get along? To answer this, it's worth going back to the beginning of the USSR.
1: Of course, varieties of Ukrainian spoken further east will be more similar to Russian forms, similarly in the areas in Russia, closer to that area, people speak with a lot more features of what we now call standard Ukrainian. But aside from that dialect variation, there is also the influence of Russification. So what I mean by Russification is uh, official policies to promote Russian and Russian-ness. And what that looked like, that actually started in Tsarist times when publications in Ukrainian and public performances in Ukrainian were forbidden. They called it the little Russian language. There's some secret circular that said the little Russian language never did, does not, and never will exist. Well, if it doesn't exist, why do you have to protest so much against it, right?
0: Russification the imposition of Russian as a standard language throughout Russian-controlled territory. And some of it happened just as a result of being close to each other for centuries, as well as from the times of the Russian Empire.
1: Then in Soviet times, in the 1920s, there was first this idealistic period of trying to build communism, trying to get everybody on board with it, trying to counteract the negative aspects of the Russian imperial rule, which was kind of imposing Russian. So in the 1920s, there actually was this thing called Korenizatsiya, indigenization, where all of the non-Russian languages, all of the indigenous local languages were promoted. In some cases, especially in the Russian Far East, that, that often meant that languages that did not have a script yet would be provided with a script to, to try to get them to everybody more educated, literate and then onward to build a communist country. Um, In Ukraine, there already was a a writing system, but there were uh, efforts at standardization and promotion of the development of Ukrainian education.
0: Makes sense, right? The USSR wanted to start their rule in Ukraine and in all of their other controlled countries and territories by essentially saying, it's okay, you can speak and celebrate your language. We're not like those imperialists before us. Then came Stalin.
1: In the 1930s, under Stalin, there was a major shift in thinking. All these independent cultural developments were a little hard to rein in and control centrally, so there was a big crackdown and there was a purging of all of the intellectual leaders of all of these non-Russian countries. And part of the plan was to get everybody speaking one language to have more unity. They kind of realized that the leadership in Moscow, that uh, Russian was a language of power. It could be a consolidating force.
0: And this push and pull continued in the next decades.
1: The 60s, there was a bit more freedom. It is called a renaissance, uh, where there was a lot more literature and song, you know, cultural production in Ukrainian. Parents were even given the choice of which language would be the primary language of their children's schooling. And while that seems like, oh, well, it's nice, you have the choice. But it was very clear that if you wanted to have a better paying job, better life opportunities, you needed to know Russian well. Teachers who taught Russian were paid 15% more. Russian language schools were better funded. So it was kind of a a no-brainer. People would be like, well, we can speak our language at home and, you know, let the kids have better life opportunities.
0: That's the thing about the relationship between these two languages. They've never been on equal footing. And these policies that might seem benevolent don't in fact solve the root problem. As long as speaking Russian offers more opportunities for a better job and a higher standard of living, there will be people who will understandably choose their own well-being over any sense of national pride from speaking a certain language. And there's no shame in that. But of course, there were also people who fought back.
1: In the 80s, when the Soviet Union was um becoming shakier, and with Gorbachev's policies of glasnost and perestroika, so openness, a uh, little bit more freedom of speech, and trying to fix that the corrupt system of government, some people came forward to try to argue for more language rights and to ask for Ukrainian to be taught in university classes, uh, to, to do underground rock music in Ukrainian, which Ukrainian had the stereotype of being kind of a language with little perspective, a peasant language. So it, it was political to try to push for these things.
0: So Ukrainian had culturally been known more as a, quote, peasant language, and not a language that you would use for business or for more formal contexts. But that, of course, isn't because that language is just naturally more suitable for folklore and for the home. Rather, it's because in all those years, Ukrainian never really had a chance to be used in higher contexts at all. And the fall of the Soviet Union seemed to be the perfect moment for a change.
1: In late 1989, the Soviet Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic declared Ukrainian as their official language. And then a year and a half later, they declared independence. And it wasn't until 1996 that the constitution of the now independent Ukraine cemented Ukrainian as the official language. And it's kind of the pattern for what happened with all of the post-Soviet countries, Ukrainian and Latvian and Armenian and Georgian and Kazakh. Then the Soviet Union fell apart. And all of a sudden these languages, which had been secondary, are now the official languages of their countries. But, as you probably know, you don't change a language status overnight.
0: Indeed, you don't.
1: So, even
0: after Ukrainian officially became the national language, it still had to go against decades of Russian prevalence. Russian was still the main language of business, and many people continued to speak and write it, and to send their children to Russian-language schools. But in everyday use, these languages are very often mixed together. And this combination is one of the things Dr. Bilanuk wanted to learn more about in her research.
1: One of my first uh, research opportunities, a friend uh, who was a secretary in the linguistics department, she had gotten ill and I went to visit her at the hospital. She had an ear infection. And in the ward with her, it was a big room with 15 women or more just lined up in beds. And she encouraged me. She said, you know, everybody's bored here. We're just, you know, kind of waiting and healing. Well, you know, people weren't terribly in pain or anything. They were just uh, convalescing. She said, come, come and interview the women here. So there were people from all over the country. And one woman that I interviewed was from Luhansk Oblast, so the Far Eastern Ukrainian oblast. And as I'm interviewing her and I'm asking her which language she speaks here, which language there, she says that, well, it's it's just Ukrainian. She just speaks Ukrainian. But I am hearing her speak a very different kind of Ukrainian. It had a lot more lexicon that sounded to me more like Russian. It had some unique forms. It had a different intonation and accent. And... What I found from her also when I asked her, well, what language do you speak uh, with people who speak Russian? She's like, Russian. She, she wasn't changing how she spoke to me or how I heard her speak to other people who addressed her in Russian. It was like this one all-purpose language.
0: This all-purpose language is known in Ukraine as surjik, and it refers to the unique mixing of Russian and Ukrainian in everyday speech. Speakers of one language will often use words or phrases in another, or at least understand the other language well enough because of constant media exposure. Because it exists pretty much entirely as a spoken form of communication, surgic is not commonly written, except when attempting to add a certain realism to lines of dialogue in novels, for example. Dr. Bilanuk shares a great example of written surgic from the book History of Ukraine from Grandfather's Svirid.
1: So, what, one example is uh, this Sarmatians saying that they didn't get goods from the Greeks and uh, good quality wine. Th- that they used to get this, now they they don't have it. So, it writes, So, Vino хорошого качества. Качество in Russian, in Ukrainian, the word would be yakist. It means quality. So Russian качество, Ukrainian yakist. So that's one of these words that probably from industry, you talk about quality control and stuff like that. So the word quality in Russian would have spread more. So when he says good quality wine, he says, Вино хорошого качества.
0: I found it really interesting that in an otherwise mostly Ukrainian sentence, the words referring to quality control are in Russian. It reminds me of how, even when speaking Spanish, people in business meetings will often throw around certain English words that refer to business and industry, such as startup or venture capital.
1: And some of that perceived mixing predates standardization. And then a lot of it is a result of the Soviet era, where if you were from a rural area and you grew up speaking Ukrainian, you knew you had better life opportunities if you spoke Russian. So a lot of times people who moved to cities, you know, as adults, they try to speak more Russian They, without having much practice in it. All men had to do two years of army service. The army was run in Russian and you were always sent to some other part. Far flung part of the Soviet Union. So it really mixed up all the different ethnic groups. So there were, there were lots of uh, ways that people who lived in an area that didn't use Russian in everyday life got some Russian. So that's where we have this surzik. And surzik became an emblem of low education. It also got connotations that were a little bit more political somebody who is ashamed of their Ukrainianness, who's trying to be Russian, but not really good at it.
0: And even though the political and cultural contexts are very different, I can't help but compare that to an all too common Hispanic experience in the US. People who grew up listening to their families speak Spanish and learned it at home, but often mix in English words and grammatical structures when speaking it. And this has historically been used to mock people with this experience, as incapable of learning quote, proper Spanish. So, not really a full member of their family's culture. They're sometimes pejoratively referred to as bochos, or even as coconuts, brown on the outside and white on the inside. And like the Ukrainians who are seen as trying to be Russian, these bochos, by using so many English words, are seen as, quote, trying to be American, regardless of what their citizenship actually is, and what languages they actually grew up speaking. But let's close this tangent and go back to the two languages at hand here. One of the best known speakers of Surzhik is Ukrainian comedian Andrei Danilko, who is best known for his drag persona he's portrayed on TV for years, Verka Serduchka.
1: So the character of Verka Serduchka is supposed to be a train car attendant. So everybody gets around the country on by train and usually sleeping cars of various classes. It's interesting that the Soviet Union was not supposed to have class, but they had first class, second class, and third class train cars, right? Vyarka is an attendant of the SV, the sleeping wagon, which is the first class. And in Vierka, in this character, he would enact a not very educated, working class, kind of loudmouth, typical Ukrainian woman. Later, uh, when Verka became more famous, it was all of the stereotypical (sighs) crassness or mitchmash of what Western culture was bringing, sequins and boas and, and all that kind of stuff. When he did his comedy skits, he did not speak standard Ukrainian or Russian. He spoke what is that stereotypical, not terribly educated, working class way of speaking where you're mixing Ukrainian and Russian. At first, this was very popular in Ukraine. His skits were hilarious. They still are, but then he became extremely popular in Russia. And why was he the most popular Ukrainian actor in Russia? Well, many people felt, hmm, Russians don't want to see a legitimate standard Ukrainian respectable rock singer or a pop star. They want this caricature of Ukrainians as uh, not very educated, working class, crass, tasteless, uncultured. Now, Vierka wasn't stupid, but he did play up this character. And on his talk show, you know, sometimes he'd make fun of the guests he had, but it still was not uh, bringing Ukrainianness respectability. So Ukrainians have had kind of a love-hate relationship with Vierka Serdychka.
0: I can imagine. Again, the contexts are certainly different, but I have a similar feeling every time I watch Jimmy Kimmel and the character of Guillermo appears. Very well done. Thank you, Guillermo. I am a, a computer system analyst. Okay. <laughs> Guillermo Rodriguez began working as a security guard for Jimmy's show and eventually became his sidekick during interviews. On the one hand, I actually like Guillermo's warm and welcoming personality, and I have nothing against him personally, but there's something that always feels a bit off about his appearances, and as a Spanish speaker, I can't help but feel a little uncomfortable with how he's presented. because. Whether or not the show wants to admit it, a big part of the reason why he's meant to be funny is his heavy accent and broken English. Nice to meet you. Maybe we can play golf sometimes. Yes, I would love to. I would love to play golf. And sure, most of the time he might smile and chuckle along, but it still feels like we're laughing at him more than with him. But back to Verka Serduchka. Despite the appeal to Russian audiences in 2007, Verka, perhaps accidentally, managed to infuriate Russia with something that had nothing to do with Russian or Ukrainian, but everything to do with language. And it was on one of the most high stakes stages in the continent, Eurovision.
1: The song that Verka performed was mostly in nonsense words, some English, some German, It wasn't terribly Ukrainian. And Vierka wore this outfit with silver with a huge five-point silver star. So it was kind of making fun of Sovietness and and militarism and very silly. And the song was called Lasha Tumbai, which is a nonsense word. But that actually started a scandal where people said that they heard in the song instead of Lasha Tumbai, which Danilko said that was some kind of Mongolian word, which it's not. They heard Russia goodbye. And after that, he was blacklisted from concerts in Russia for for quite a while. And that really soured relationship. And even now he talks about how he was not being political. He was just joking.
0: Of course, now it's basically impossible to not be political about this. the language or languages one speaks in Ukraine have always had political and cultural connotations. These connotations, however, suddenly became much more overt after 2014 with the Russian invasion of the Crimean Peninsula. In fact, one of President Putin's arguments for this invasion actually has to do with language.
1: In 2014, the language issue was also there. Putin said that he needed to defend Russophones, that the Ukrainian government was trying to get rid of Russians and Russian speakers. That's still part of the rhetoric, but it's kind of, it's, it's, it's all completely unthinkably tragic and sad, but the Russian army is actually killing the most people in the areas where Russian language was most widely uh, spoken as a first language, because that is the thing. Even though they were Russian-speaking, they did not want to be under Russian rule.
0: And these Russian-speaking Ukrainians are making their political opinions extra clear by switching languages.
1: And that has even made many people whose first language is Russian say, like, I don't want Putin to come protect me. I'm going to switch. So there's been this whole language conversion thing, either from a deep ideology that they're going back to their hereditary roots or even if they're ethnic Russian, being like, no, this is I'm a citizen of Ukraine, I'm gonna speak Ukrainian now. And the fact of the matter is that even in the past eight years of the war, and even now, a lot of people who are trying to fight off the Russian armies are native Russian speakers.
0: And native Ukrainian speakers have welcomed this switch. Dr. Bilanuk says their typical reaction to Russian people speaking Ukrainian especially when the speaker clearly isn't fluent in it, changed significantly after 2014.
1: This way of speaking Ukrainian with strong Russian influence used to be very stigmatized because it's like, oh, well, you know, it grates the ear. Don't torture the language. Just just speak a correct language. But now it's really shifting more to, doesn't matter if it's not perfectly correct, make the effort, you know, speak Ukrainian because it matters.
0: It matters. The language you choose to speak matters. And the language you don't choose to speak, the language you learned in school, the one you need to use at work, for government affairs, for ceremonies, and for everyday tasks, it also matters. Yet there is another layer to this story, one where the language, in a way, doesn't matter. One where your affiliation to Ukraine Your sense of belonging in the country doesn't have to be linked to the language you speak.
1: In Ukraine, when I would, for example, start speaking Ukrainian, somebody answered in Russian I'd switch to Russian, they'd be like, no, 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 I understand Ukrainian, keep speaking Ukrainian. They didn't want to switch, but uh, they wanted me to keep speaking the way I started. And so it's gotten to a point where language is transparent for many people. They understand each other. They don't even really notice which language they're speaking.
0: Dr. Bilanuke refers to this as non-accommodating bilingualism. Because people who speak different languages are often capable of speaking each other's language and willing to hear each other speak it. they just rather speak their own.
1: And as I was researching this, I found that it's really, it's, it's on the streets, you know, in shops. Television shows would have two hosts, one speaking Ukrainian, one speaking Russian, and the guests would speak whichever, sometimes switch. So a very bilingual regime.
0: In a way, it's refreshing to see that conflict can trigger two very different perspectives on language at the same time. One in which the choice to speak a historically neglected language is celebrated, and another in which everyone can continue to speak the language they're more comfortable with and everyone understands each other. We would like to end today's episode with a piece by Ukrainian journalist Anna Romandash, who brings us a story about translation in the current war. We have featured Romandash's work in our Ochenta Stories and Ochenta Cuentos series, and we're glad to present another of her stories this time about a woman in Ukraine who volunteers as a translator to help spread verified news about the war throughout the world.
2: Many people keep coming to my town either to spend the night before heading to the Polish border or to stay here for an unknown amount of time. Ukrainians who arrive here as they are fleeing the war say that they are finally able to breathe after all these days of tension and fear. Finally, the sky does not look heavy and all this baggage of difficult emotions turn into calmness.
3: Since the invasion began in February, many Ukrainians fled the country, but many more stayed to do what they could do to help. Marta Datsyuk is a translator. My name is Marta.
2: I work in communications and media production. I'm from Sokal in Lviv region.
3: Marta was born and raised
2: in sovereign Ukraine. I lived across many different countries and cities. But I'm back to Sokal. Because during the Russian-Ukrainian war, this is the safest place for me in Ukraine.
3: Marta's hometown is now accepting many internally displaced people who run away from war in eastern regions. The new residents say that they find calmness and kindness in their temporary home. For Marta, this helped her rediscover her hometown.
2: We can concentrate on becoming the most useful at the rear. Locals are united, determined and active. Some are part of the territorial defense, others drive to the border every day to pick up humanitarian aid and deliver it, others distribute food and drinks there, some train others how to give urgent medical help, and doctors from the town hospital help at the border too. You feel the united work of the entire town which was not there for a long time. This unity and coordination of a small town shows unity and coordination of the entire Ukraine. When Russian troops started their full-scale invasion into Ukraine, I had many feelings, but I always try to keep my mind calm and collected. Now I'm doing whatever I can to be the most useful for my country. I'm in contact with Ukrainian and foreign journalists. I do translations, I produce stories and audio, and I also support Ukrainians who had to flee their homes.
3: Marta joined a group of digital activists composed of students and alumni of her alma mater in Ukraine. Together, they are informing the world and sharing verified information on the war atrocities.
2: I cannot call myself a volunteer because my volunteering is quite situational. One day I write a press release about volunteering projects, contact journalists and media, write texts and comments for foreign platforms. But on another day I translate from Ukrainian into Polish messages for the Polish community about humanitarian aid or looking for housing for internally displaced people.
3: The activists are a network that collaborates with media outlets across the country and beyond. Translators have to adopt messages so they appear to specific audience which read it in those languages. Therefore, a text about the war in Ukraine would sound different when it is for a reader in Germany or a reader in the US. For Polish people, for whom Marta translates, she emphasizes the similarity between the modern-day and 1939's Hitler invasion.
2: I translate into Polish and into English. For the Polish people it's very easy because our language, culture and other things are very close to them. We are neighbors so I don't need to explain the context of the word too much. Poles understand our history as we understand us. Any message is well received by Poles. They
3: respond right away and try to help by all means. As per English translation, more context is needed. Marta explains that everything depends on the country, its location, history, and connection to Ukraine. It also matters if a country has a large Ukrainian diaspora. Many Americans
2: don't know much about Ukraine, and some did not even know its location before the war happened. So when I translate, I give that information so people know what's going on and why it should matter to them.
3: Martha says that many Americans support Ukrainians and their quest against Russian invasion, but they seek more information to understand what is happening. So every translation is also an explainer where people can discover or rediscover Ukraine.
2: For British audiences, we often draw parallels between Ukraine and Winston Churchill's war speeches. And for other Europeans who speak English, we emphasize that the war came back to Europe and that Ukraine
3: is not the only target. For Marta, it is important to understand what resonates with people for whom she writes and translates, and to evoke strong feelings through telling stories about current reality. I want to thank the residents of
2: all countries who help Ukrainians now. Thanks to all who share information about Russian invasion, who participates in marches to support Ukraine, and who host refugees. Your help and support are very precious to us.
3: Despite all the horrors of war, Marta remains hopeful.
2: I am proud of my nation and I feel eternally grateful to all Ukrainian defenders.
0: Thank you for listening to Atlas Lingway. If you're new to the series, catch up with our previous episodes. I am Luis Lopez, and it has been a pleasure to accompany you on this journey. Check out our show notes for more information on humanitarian organizations that you can donate to, to help those displaced by the war in Ukraine and by many other conflicts around the world. Special thanks to Dr. Lada Bilaniuk and to Anna Romandash. Production and theme by Studio Ochenta. Executive producer, Lori Martinez. Senior producer, Glitia Sala. Sound design and production by me, Luis Lopez, with additional production by Chiara Sandella, Catalina Hoyos, and Linnea Wingerup. For more information on Atlas Lingue, a Studio Ochenta original series and podcast, go to ochentastudio.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Our podcast is available on CastBox, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time… Hi, it's Luis here, and I want to tell you about a show we've been listening to called The Pulso Podcast. There are a lot of podcasts that cover Latino culture and news, but this is one of the first we've heard that really utilizes the throughline of history to provide more context and nuance to our stories. From the halls of Congress to the stages of Broadway, even the food we consider to be American, Latinos helped build this country. And we're not going anywhere. Yet most podcasts are still lacking Latino representation behind and in front of the mic. The Pulso Podcast is a Latina-hosted, latina produced show that explores untold stories and unheard voices shaping the experiences of nuestra gente. They've covered topics from beauty standards and gender equality to mental health and food origins. And did you know that there is an official Spanish version of the Star-Spangled Banner? Or that a team of Mexican lawyers changed the future of segregation laws in the 50s? To hear more, check out the Pulso podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.